Great to see you today. We are studying for the month of June, 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 18, which covers David and Bathsheba. So I'm going to give you a little warning, all right? So if you have kids or your ears are just exceptionally tender, uh, here's your warning. So Zach is going to speak in just a few moments. Nothing like David and Bathsheba. He's just going to... He's just... He's going he's gonna to simply finish his story from last week. He's very dramatic, uh, like Paul Harvey. He's going to give you the rest of the story. The title of the message of the Making the Fool has nothing to do with Zach either. I just want to clarify that. He's just going to finish last week's story. However, I do want to warn you. So if you want to, you know, if you have a kid in here or something, you're worried about it, we're talking about adultery. We're talking about temptation. We're talking about men for the next four weeks, Okay. We're good? Good. All right. Please welcome my friend, Zach Stewart. Stand, Zach. It's good. We're good on sound? Okay. All right. So folks who missed last week, not a problem. I will give you the little montage, right? The one that introduces you to episode two. Okay. So previously on Zach's testimony. Um, so the quick version. A few, year, a few Easter's ago, my life was in pretty good shape. After years of prayer by my small group at Grace, God delivered me from a lousy job situation into a really good one. I had plenty of friends, and I was about six months into a relationship that really seemed to be going somewhere. But all these answered prayers helped me to believe that God was listening, but I just, I just still didn't really feel him in here. I, I wasn't sure how to connect with him, so one Easter I prayed a very special prayer to him, and I said, God, I need your help. I need you to grow my faith. He responded in a big way. But to mold me his way, he needed to shake things up a little first. He needed to stretch me. That's kind of the way he does things. He started just a few days later by taking my big, flashy job away without any good explanation for why, neither from him nor the people I worked for. This struck a real blow to my confidence and put a lot of pressure on my new relationship. Not knowing what had gone wrong, I started to doubt my skills as a lawyer, thinking maybe I should be doing something completely different, like work on Capitol Hill. I made connections for weeks and weeks, trying to land a job there, and the weeks turned into months. But even doors that seemed like they should have opened simply would not. Um, And eventually, with time running short, it was time for me to face something that I had been avoiding for a long time. All along that, all during the months I was searching, I had known exactly the type of job that I had the best chance of landing, but I was too intimidated. My best option was to go to work for a very large law firm, big enough to have a group doing my specialized kind of work. I was not interested in doing that at all. They told horror stories in law school about those places, about tracking your life in six-minute increments, about working weekends weekends for weeks on end. It seemed like a job that would be great for someone who would work 12 straight hours and still be sharp as a tack, and that did not seem like me. Finally, I gave in, and soon after that, I had an interview at a very large law firm just like that. In August, in downtown Washington, in the sun, (laughs) we came inside and said, oh, great, all right, thank goodness I get to have my interview inside. Little did I know that um, it was the side of the building that had a big window, and so the sun was beating down on me the entire time. So literally, while I was making eye contact with the people I would be discussing, I think my greatest strength is that I, I really can perform. And I, seriously, I, I did not feel it was particularly impressive. 
after it was finished, I was supposed to come back down and check out with the recruiter, so I did. Suddenly, my recruiter got a phone call from the person I'd just been interviewing with. She rushed, up, she rushed upstairs, leaving me perplexed. For goodness gracious, if they didn't like me, couldn't they just send me a rejection in the mail? <laughs> Did they have to tell me right there on the spot? I sat there a few minutes until she came back and told me that they were giving me an offer right there on the spot. So for weeks, just to recap, for weeks, doors that just seemed like they should open. I was overqualified for places. I knew people. I had help. I had people putting in words for me all over the place. Those doors simply would not open. And now suddenly a door that I didn't feel I had any business knocking on had opened right up. And my salary was going to nearly double again. I didn't see any other explanation for this other than God's will. I was still seriously intimidated, but I took the job. God's plan to stretch me had only just started. My first assignment was seriously difficult. It was a topic I had never worked with before. And if law wasn't hard enough, this one mixed law with accounting. Ouch. Forget finding a needle in a haystack. This was more like finding a needle buried in concrete. I hid in my office for days, killing forests worth of trees on the printer, trying desperately to find the needle. I started hearing rumors about people who had worked there who didn't last long. Oh, and the only other junior person in the group, as soon as I found out I got hired, I found out she was leaving. I couldn't find the darn needle. I, I started to panic. I started to hide in my office like Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden, hoping that I wouldn't be seen. I never did find that needle, by the way. And, and uh, strangely enough, I, I saw that the case ended a couple weeks ago, and the reason I didn't find it was it wasn't there. Um, <laughs> but I didn't give up. I didn't give up. God didn't give up on me. My boss didn't give up on me. And neither did my girlfriend, who stuck with me through some really difficult stretches through the whole search, and now through this as well. My boss worked harder than anyone I had ever met. He was brilliant, and he had extremely high standards. It was incredibly tough to impress him, and I felt like I rarely did. There were long stretches where I felt really alone. I fell into self-pity quite a bit. For those of you who want to look over there, I'm sure my wife is nodding her head right now, and she would be just in doing so. Over time, I got better. I was no rock star, but I learned to work under real pressure, and I got tougher on the outside. I learned to teach myself things when others either didn't have the time or the inclination to help me. I learned to become more accountable, which I needed at home too, because my relationship with my girlfriend, now wife, oops, I ruined the story, got more serious. I became a better steward of God's money, making my giving to him a priority, and I started saving for an engagement ring too. One day the firm sent out a message it was looking for someone to help join a pro bono project to help out some nonprofit education group. They thought they just needed someone to sit down with them and explain to them why some letter they got in the mail was saying bad things. I was sort of already busy that day. It was December, it was holiday season, and I just, I wasn't sure whether I'd do it or not, whether I should do it or not, but, but I did. Thank God for whispering in my ear that I should. Um, soon after that short meeting, the size of the problem became evident. This well-meaning group of folks that was truly doing God's work, I thought, um, had made a simple miscommunication which had mushroomed into a much bigger one. And eventually a lot of hardworking people and well-meaning people had been accused of some serious wrongdoing. Over the next several months, I got to work closely with someone new, someone caring and encouraging who I'm glad to call a mentor and a friend. And together, 
we got all the charges dropped and even got the foundation back some money that had been held back from them during all these charges. I got to put my skills to use helping some people that I think God would be really proud of. At a certain point, I was about ready to move on. I felt like the punching bag had, take, punching bag had taken enough. God showed me a sign that he agreed. I had made it to God's finish line without quitting, which was a big deal. <laughs> I know this because on the way out, I had a goodbye lunch with someone who I'd worked on, someone younger who I'd worked on on one of my tougher projects. We went to a special lunch at a fancy place to say goodbye, and he asked me how I had survived working with you-know-who. I gave him my sort of official party line answer, and the conversation went on. And about 10 minutes later, he looked up at me from his salad and said, okay, so really, how did you do that? God eventually delivered me to a place where I see the benefits of that trial every day. Today, I work for a Fortune 500 company. I encounter some pretty powerful people on a regular basis, and I have to say I'm not particularly intimidated by them. In part, it's because I've worked for some more fearsome folks before. But the other reason is that whoever they are, they're not as powerful as my God. And whatever they do, if I stick with him, stay humble, and remember where I came from, I'll be just fine. As God says in Jeremiah, and I had a little card in my wallet that I couldn't find. I used to have my wallet. As God says in Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to, to give you a future. Something like that. Very close. And for those of you who need something outside the Bible to help you out, you can just take your grip on the words of Abba. Take a chance on me. God will listen and he will hear you. Thanks. <laughs> All right, that was great. Thank you. Zach Zach will be signing autographs outside. How do I uh, how do I men- how do I get the worst stands in the world? How's this? I mean, are we going to survive this? Wow, you did a pretty good job with it, but anyway, I like sturdy stands when I speaking. Anyway, let's talk about David. David and Bathsheba. Well, recap. So the chapter 2 Samuel leading up to chapter 11 is like, woo, it's all about David and it's things are going so great and so awesome. David became king when he was 30. So he's a young boy when he defeated Goliath, right? And when Samuel, we talked about this last week, Samuel shows up and anoints him. So he's got, uh, he's got his father who doesn't believe in him, but his, but his heavenly father believes in him. His earthly father does not. He's got his oldest brother who rebukes him, but Samuel shows up and anoints him as king. He defeats Goliath. He has tremendous success. He finally becomes king at the age of 30. And when we find him here in chapter 11, he is now about 50 years old. And so he's had tremendous success much of his life, particularly between the ages of 30 and 50. So what you get uh, as you read the chapters leading up to chapter 11, which we're going to focus on, is enlarging territory, powerful army. David is a phenomenal fighter. He is a warrior to the core. I mean, the boy can just absolutely kick butt. doesn't matter who he comes encounter with, he can do it. And he commands troops to do the exact same thing. Financially, they are strong imports, exports. It is all working. He has a beautiful home and things are just fantastic. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I simply want to pray this morning a message that Zach has reminded us of these past two weeks, a message that is all over the place in your word, a message 
and a prayer that the disciples said to you, Jesus Christ, Lord, increase our faith. In Christ's name, amen. Video screen, we got I want to say to each of you, simply and directly, I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. New York Governor Elliot Spitzer has told his senior administration officials he had been involved in a prostitution ring. California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger admits fathering a child with another woman. The admission comes just days after Schwarzenegger and his wife Maria Schreiber announced that they were getting separated. For International Monetary Fund Chief Dominique Strauss-Kahn, it was public humiliation in a Manhattan courtroom today for his alleged victim. It was the all right, well, we don't need to keep going over that. Maybe some of you saw we put it up on the screen, Time Magazine. Anybody see the cover of Time Magazine? What makes powerful men act like pigs? And there's a little note down here by the pig, no offense. I don't know that they mean no offense to the pig or no offense to the, to the man who's being called a pig, but uh, that's, that, that's what they got. Didn't take us long to put together those video clippings because uh, there are a lot of them out there. They're all over the place, and we could have gone on and on and on and on. Why does this happen? This is what we're going to talk about today. And then in the aftermath, we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks. So I've got three things that I'd like to point out from the scriptures today. Second Samuel chapter 11. And the first one is this. Fools. We're talking about the making of a fool. No man wants to be, look like a fool. No man. From the, from the time he's a little boy, he does not want to be singled out on the playground and look like a fool. And he doesn't want to look like a fool in front of the entire world because he's been caught doing something he should not do. Washingtonian Magazine, the last, uh, the last edition of Washingtonian, said this guy DSK from the IMF was set to be the next president of France. Obviously, they went to writing before his situation up in New York City. So why does that happen? The first point is this. Fools stay off the field. Fools stay off the field. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at it. Second Samuel chapter 11, it says this. The following spring, right? The time of year when kings go to war, David sent Joab and he stayed at home. The following year, the time when kings go off to war, David decides instead of going off to war that he is going to stay at home. What we see in a practical sense in the Old Testament has tremendous spiritual implications to us today. That's the way the Bible works. And so he sends Joab off to war. Now, this is David saying, you know what, I'm coming off the field. And he's not coming off the field to take a break. He's not, hey, coach, I need a break. Can you take me off the field for a minute? You know, I need a quick blow. That's not, that's not what's going on here. This is him calling, you know what, I'm actually going to gather my stuff, go to the locker room, get everything I got there, and I'm leaving the whole stadium. I'm leaving. Because he had just had a break. He had just took the entire winter off. It's now springtime. This is what kings do. They go to war in the springtime. They go to battle. And instead of him going to battle, he sends his general Joab to go to battle for him. And instead of him being on the battlefield, he's in bed. And this is a massive problem. He takes, all, he takes time off spiritually. Uh, listen, help me, help me finish this sentence, all right? There are no atheists in where? Foxholes, right? Because when we're in the middle of a battle, it makes us, what it does for us men when we're in a battle, when we're, our faith is being, it makes us be dependent upon God. 
right? That's why you find a lot of military people really acknowledge God. You ever notice that? Because they know what it's like to have guns pointed at them. And when we're in a situation, we're on the front lines of a battlefield. Oh, my gosh. We are no longer self-sufficient. We are no longer independent. We, are, we, we don't forget about God. You know, how pro, you know what it says in Psalm, Psalm 14? The fool says in his heart there is no God. I used to think, well, you know, that's talking about atheists. That's not talking about atheists. Because when, when Psalms was written, Psalm 14, nobody was an atheist. Everybody believed in God. It's talking about people who forget God. And when you're not on the front lines, it's much easier to forget about God. But when you're on the front lines and you think that you might die, like somebody might blow your head off, you're thinking, oh, God, please help me. Please help me. So we need to stay on the field with our faith being built. And what David is doing here, he's taking himself off the field, guys. There is a total connection in the scripture between somebody who says, build my faith, right? God, build my faith. And then that person being able to stay on better track with almighty God and then being able to power through their temptations. There's a definite connection there. God, build my faith, staying on track with God and powering through some really powerful temptations that exist. Then David completely Take some time off. He's saying, no moss. I'm done, Sugar Ray Leonard. I'm leaving the fight. I'm not going to keep going here. This is a bad move on his part. Amos 6.1 says this. Woe to you who are complacent. When the Bible says woe, you know what it means? It means danger. 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 There's a problem here. It's a big problem. It's dangerous to go complacent. It's dangerous to go complacent with your faith. Don't get to that point where you've gone that way. So what is David doing? We'll see him here in chapter 11. Instead of being on the battlefield, he's in bed. And then we see him just lounging around the palace, bored to death, apathetic and complacent. While all of his fighters are out on the field, fighting, living, dying, trusting in God for victory. I've got something. I want to go through this. It's on your outline, okay? Uh, You might say, why in the world did you go through this? But it's going to make sense. I hope it's going to make sense later. 12 times in chapter 11 alone, 12 times in chapter 11 alone, the word send is used. David uses them eight times. I want to go through those for you. So it says this in verse number one, David sends Joab. Instead of him going off himself to war, he sends Joab. What do what, what people who are independent, self-sufficient, powerful people do? They're into sending people. Go get that for me. Go do this for me. Right? This is his mindset. This is where he is. He's doing all this sending. He sends Joab. Verse number three, David sends someone to find out what? Who she is. Who is that woman down there taking a bath? Verse number four, David sends for her. Oh, bring her to me. Verse number six, David sends word to Joab. Send Uriah home. What happened? Who's who's Uriah? Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. David got Bathsheba pregnant. He's got a problem. He's got to send Uriah, one of his mighty men of valor listed in the scriptures, send him home so he can sleep with her and he'll think it's his baby. Verse number eight, David sends a gift to who? To Uriah, trying to butter him up, trying to soften him up. Verse number 12, 
David sends for Uriah to get him drunk. So what happened is, is David brought him home, said, hey, how you doing? You're doing a great job. Tell me about the war and everything. All right, look, I want you to go and I want you to wash your feet and go home. When it says wash your feet in the scriptures, everybody, it's not talking about your feet that you're washing. It's a euphemism. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do I need to say it any clearer? It's talking about washing something else. I want you to go home and sleep with your wife. That's what it means in the scripture. And instead of doing that, because the Bible says a soldier, when battle's going on in his country for the Israelites, they should not sleep with their wife. They should not have sex with their wife. Uriah knows this and he refuses to do it. He doesn't even go down to that. He doesn't want to see her. You know why? She's smoking hot. So he doesn't want to see her. So he stays right there at the palace. He stays right there with the palace and he sleeps there. David hears about it. He's like, oh my gosh, what is with this guy? He brings him back and just gets him just fall down drunk. Fall down drunk and then says, all right, now go home. And he refuses to do it. And what do, we, what do we learn by that? That Uriah has more character when he's drunk than David does when he's sober. Last one, verse number 14. David sends Uriah back to Joab carrying his own letter of death. When Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife, David knows he's in a huge problem, so he concocts this scheme. And instead of him just falling on his face and saying, oh, God, I've just completely blown it. Well, you know what? When you get yourself in a bad situation, one of the best things you could possibly do, and one of the best things I could possibly do, even when I screwed up royally, is just go to God and say, God, I have really screwed up. I've, I've blown it big time. Could you somehow help me with this mess? So he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He concocts this scheme in his own strength, in his own power, in his own thinking. He comes with this idea. You know what? I'm going to tell Joab, put this guy, one of my mighty men of valor, listed. David's got these mighty men that are listed in the scriptures. Uriah's one of them. He's an acclaimed fighter, a man of tremendous character and honor. And to lose him is going to be terrible. David says, Joab, put him on the front lines and push the battle, push the battle until he's dead. He puts that letter, he seals it, and he hands it to Uriah and says, deliver that to your general. So he sends him back to Joab with his own letter of death. A lot of sending that is going on here. All right, point number two, check this out. Fools disrespect the rules. Fools take themselves out of the game. They're not interested in growing their faith anymore. That's the total wrong way to go. go. But here's the second thing they do. Fools like David, headed to fooldom, all right, disrespect the rules. Late one afternoon, David got out of bed. He should have been on the battlefield, but he gets out of bed after taking himself a nap. And he went for a stroll on the roof of the palace. Please do not forget the roof of the palace, everybody. It's very important. Don't forget that one. Underline it. If you're following that little blue thing, underline the roof of the palace. We're going to come back to the roof of the palace in just a moment. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman. Now listen, the Bible does not exaggerate. The Bible is not given to exaggeration. When it says something, you know, put some kind of adjective, very or unusual or whatever, it means. It means what it's saying. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty. She, she was, whoa, you know what I'm saying? Husbands, if you're sitting next to your wife, say, turn to them and say, you are unusually beautiful, okay? Do that right now, because that's going to say, I know what I'm doing. This is going to save you problems later on. <laughs> it just is. This is the way it works. I've learned. All right? He noticed a woman of unusual beauty, and she's taking a bath. Do you think she knows what she's doing? Yes, she does. That's the answer. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba. 
interesting. She's taking a bath and her name is Bathsheba. What's up with that? She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now listen, when you're given somebody's genealogy, it is very unusual in this culture, in this day and age, that you include their spouse. What is this messenger trying to send as a message to King David? David, I'm seeing a look in your eye. And I'm a little lowly servant here, and you're the great, powerful, mighty king, and everybody bows down to you. But I just want to humbly say, she's a married woman, the wife of one of your mighty men of valor. So, says uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent for her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. For the typical men, man, for the typical man, Women are a problem. Women are a problem. You might say, well, why? And I'd say, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about that. Deuteronomy 17, 17. uh, God is giving instructions before Israel even had a king. He's giving instructions. He says, I know one day you're going to ask for a king. You're going to ask for a king. And I want to give you some instructions about how those kings should function before you even ask for the king. So in Deuteronomy 17, he makes it really clear. When you have a king, he gives three things. I'm going to give you one of them right here. He says this, Deuteronomy 17, 17. The king must not take many wives for himself. Why? Because they will lead him away from the Lord. Now, this was normal. I mean, when you become king, I mean, you become king. And when a man becomes king, what do you, what do you think he's going to do? Right? So the normal thing that was going into all the other kingdoms around Israel is that the kings would take as many wives as they could possibly get their hands on. They would take the best and the most beautiful, and they would take the And so God says, look, don't do that, because if you do that, it's going to lead you away from the Lord. Well, what's, that? what's up with that, women? Why are you going to lead us away from the Lord? Why is that a problem? Let's talk about that. 2 Samuel 5.13, David knowing exactly the rules that God gave, exactly the rules that God gave for the kings of Israel, this is what it says. After moving from Hebron, to Jerusalem. So when David, he's king in Hebron, but he wanted to make Jerusalem his capital. And so when he's moving, this is a big deal, everybody. When he's moving, Jerusalem, it's a big deal. Notice what it says. When he moves from Hebron, Jerusalem, David married more wives. He already had a bunch of wives. He marries more wives. And check this out. Concubines. What the heck is a concubine? They're around for one thing. I'll let you guess what that is about. David married more wives and concubines, and he had many sons and daughters. More wives. Fools break all the rules. In our male thinking, men, a typical male thinks this way. I'm a typical male. We think the more women, the better. The more women, the more satisfaction. And let me tell you, that doesn't work. And you know why it does not work? Because God created us, God designed us, and he says, it's not going to work that way for you. What's going to happen is the more women you have, the less sexual satisfaction that you're going to be able to gain in your life. More equals less. That's the way God goes. And that's why he says, don't take all of these women. It's going to lead you, you'll become more and more discontent and more and more dissatisfied with life. Here's the typical scenario in America. Typical man wants to date as many women as he can get his hands on if possible, right? And for the typical male, he's going to go to bed with as many women as possible. And then maybe he's going to finally find that right one. He's going, I'm going to commit my life to you. 
And then what is he going to do the night before his wedding? What's that typical storyline that goes? What happens? What party takes place the night before the wedding, right? A bachelor party. And what do you do at the bachelor party? Man, you just have a blowout. You get it all out of your system. Because once it's out of your system, it's out of your system, right? Woo! It's just gone. This, it's, it, I empty the system. I've had full satisfaction. Now I can commit fully to this one woman for the rest of my life. Although every man is completely scared about that. A lot of men are afraid just to get married. We're afraid just to get married. Because thinking, my gosh, are you serious? I'm going to, I will never, I could never possibly be satisfied sexually the rest of my life committed to just this one. I don't know a guy here who doesn't want the entire buffet of women. Because in our thinking, everybody, right guys? In our thinking, the way to sexual satisfaction is as many women as possible. That there could not possibly be greater satisfaction with just one woman. And this is what David's thinking. How could he commit to just one? Well, I want you to think about this, everybody. Let's think about how satisfied sexually David is. He has a palace filled with Israel's most beautiful women. He could have picked up the phone and said, you know what? Send wife number 10 down to me or concubine number 56. Send them down to me. Instead, he looks to one of his mighty men of valor on the battlefield fighting for him. Who he trusts and says, I'll take that one because I'm not satisfied with anything I've got. Now, how is that possible? You know why? Because that's the way God set it up. God's ways are not our ways. And we think the route to sexual satisfaction is more. It's not more, it's less. Now, we talk about that from the Bible all day. But then we can turn to studies. And you know what? If you turn to studies on this whole thing, you're going to find that the Bible is exactly right. People who are into more women, have more and more women in their lives, are less sexually satisfied. People, guys, guys, who turn to pornography, Trying to find sexual satisfaction. You know what they say? Their sexual satisfaction just, just nosedives. It's worse. We think in our brain that the buffet is going to make us full and satisfied when in fact the buffet makes us much less than satisfied. It makes us discontent. And so we see here David. This is what exactly he does. I've been having a conversation with a guy. It was about 15 years ago. And um, we're just normal conversation. And uh, we're talking about this whole thing about women and then going on and i finally just said to him just musing to to myself because i want to say i understand how the typical male brain works because i have a typical i want to impress that upon you i have a typical male brain and so he's talking about all these girls and i just said i wonder uh does it does it make do we find more satisfaction with the more women that we're with i mean is that is that is that the path to more satisfaction he's i said because Maybe, maybe the way to that satisfaction is maybe what God's talking about here. Maybe that's where the greatest... Act, and he said, I'm just... I mean, he was like, I am disputing that. The way to satisfaction is get as many women as you want. And he's just going... I mean, he's just laying it on, you know? And you've got to love it. Some of you guys have been in conversations, maybe something like that before. And so you're like, yeah, man, go, go, go. So he's just, he's just hammering away. That's 15 years ago. I got to tell you, that guy's life is a complete disaster. He's been with a lot of women. 
And he's about as dissatisfied, discontent sexually as you would imagine. It's just miserable. Some of you, some of you know some guys, man, they're out there. They're just, man, they're playing. You're like, whoa, man, if I could be that guy. <laughs> if I could be that guy. That guy's living the dream. He's got so many women. It's absolutely unbelievable. We'll come back to that in a minute. I want to say this. Guys, we cannot mistreat God's greatest creation and get away with it. If you were here on Mother's Day, we made a case for that. A woman was the last thing that God created. His greatest moment of creation was the woman. God will not allow us to mistreat his greatest act of creation and get away with it. He, and we're going to talk about how loving and kind and all this. I'm going to tell you something. God will light you up. He will kick your butt like you've never had your butt kicked before. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Let me give you one last verse. Proverbs 18.22. I talked about this a few weeks ago. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from God. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from God. It doesn't say he who finds wives or he who finds sexual partners finds a good thing. <laughs> That's the way our brain, right, men? Don't shake your head yes. I'm, I know you're agreeing with me on the inside. You don't need to do a thing, particularly if you're sitting next to your wife, all right? It's bad enough with her. But this is, this is the reality, all right? We all know it's a reality, so we're not playing games. Ladies, you're along for the ride today. You can go to sleep. We care what you do. We're going to talk to the guys. Our male thinking is he who finds many sexual partners <laughs> receives a really good thing. God says he who finds a wife, singular, finds a wife, finds a good thing, receives favor from God. We go out and we play the field and we're with as many women as possible. We are not under the favor of God. We are not under the favor of God. Our best chance, everybody, at sexual satisfaction, men, is one woman. And the studies prove that right from the Bible. Last point, all right? How late is it? I don't have my clock today. 10.25, all right, we're almost done. We can all go home and act like it never took place. All right. <laughs> Fools think that God will never act. Fools think that God will never act. Remember that whole sending thing I had us go through a few minutes ago? Remember that? David sending, sending, sending. Now God's going to do some sending of his own. He's going to send one time, and that's all it's going to take. And he is going to drop the hammer. It says, Verse number one, chapter 12. So chapter 11 is all about David's crap that he did, right? Now here's how chapter 12 begins. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. Bam, that's all it need to be said. It's history at this point. David has done his deal. About a year had passed between chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. David thought, well, you know, I'm miserable, but it looks like I got away with it. No, no, you didn't, big guy. You did not. Here's what I want you to know, all right? Fellas, some of you have taken yourself out of the game with faith, right? You've taken yourself out of the game. You've taken it off like no mas. I'm done. I'm leaving the fight. Let somebody else do this faith thing. I'm okay. I want you to know that God still loves you, okay? All right. Some of you have ignored all the rules. Some of you ignore all the rules. I want you to know that God forgives you. I want you to know there's no condemnation and there's no judgment here because I completely understand and so does God. All right. But I also want you really, really to know this. 
the consequences will not be eliminated. If we ignore God, he is going to light us up. And that's exactly what he's getting ready to do to David. David, I love you. Man, if you ask for getting beautiful, that's the best thing you can do. Get your life back on track. But I want you to know that I'm going to drive your stinking butt right into the ground like you have never dreamed of. Look what's getting ready to happen to him. Nathan says, therefore, the sword, David, is never going to depart your house. Think about that, everybody. The sword. David was a great warrior. He's a great fighter. He's used to using the sword, killing people. He cut off Goliath's head. When he went back to Saul, he's holding Goliath's head in his hand in front of King Saul because he had just chopped it off. What would that be like, man? I could, I'd pass out all over the place. He's just tough as nails, holding that head. Here's the big old head. guy's nine feet tall. How big is the guy's head? I mean, it's been like a watermelon or something, right? He's holding that up, dripping blood, dripping all guts coming out. This is a tough guy. He's used to being on the battlefield with a sword. And so Nathan says, you know that sword that you use in the battlefield and all the blood and guts and all that kind of stuff? That's going to be right in your house from now on. Like you are not, from the now to the time you die, the sword from the battlefield is going to be in your house. Battlefield is a horrible place. Because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I'm going to take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. The word close to you in Hebrew means your own relative. Your own relative is going to take your wives. And what you did undercover is going to be in broad daylight. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret. I'm going to do this thing to you in broad daylight before all of Israel. Job 4.8 says this. Those who plow evil and those who sow trouble are going to reap it. Galatians chapter 6 says this. God says, I will not be mocked. God is saying, there is no way that you're going to test me on this. I will not be mocked. What you sow is what you reap. And so David had sown a lot of wickedness. And he's getting ready to reap a huge amount of trouble. What are his consequences? And first of all, Bathsheba becomes pregnant, as we know. That baby dies. David mourns fast, prays all week that baby would live, and that baby dies, and his heart was completely broken. His family, everybody, from this point forward was an absolute, utter catastrophe and a mess. He had a son. He had all these wives, right? So he had kids all over the place. So he had this son named Amnon, and Amnon was like, seriously lusting in an incestuous way for his sister Tamar, his half-sister Tamar. Tamar's brother was Absalom. And so, again, here we come back to the bed situation. There's all this stuff about, you know, beds and David in the bed. So, so Amnon comes up with this idea, I'm going to fake like I'm sick in my bed and I can't get out of my bed. And my dad, King David, is going to come and visit me. And I'm going to say to my dad, and this is what he does, his, his dad, I'm so sick. And dad says, well, what can I do? What, what can we do for you, Amnon? And Amnon says this. He says, could you send Tamar to me? Tamar, my sister, to me, right? Because I want her to cook in front of me. Notice this. In front of me, I want to watch her cook. And then I want to feed right out of her. I want to eat right out of her hand. Would you send her to me? And David, because of his sin, is dumb as dirt, is stupid. You can't see that coming a mile away. What, what's up with this? You know, this doesn't come out anywhere that Amnon is burning with lust for his sister. David must know, but he knows so stupid. He says, okay, I'll send her. Sends her in. And what does Amnon do? He rapes her. She leaves. David hears about it. He doesn't do jack. He gets angry, but that's it. 
Absalom, the brother, is so burned up over this thing. Oh, man, he's burned. So he says, okay, now, now the rest of her life is trash. And that society she lived in, man, she was damaged goods. Nobody wanted to touch her. Absalom brings us, you just live in my house. She lives there, it says in the scripture, a desolate woman the rest of her life. That's what happened. Absalom burning on fire. He is on fire. Two years later, and David knows he's on fire. Two years later, Absalom comes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I got a bunch of sheep. We're going to have a big party. We're going to shear the sheep. It's always a big deal back then. We're going to shear the sheep. Come to the party. Dad says, I can't make it. Dad, oh, come on. Come to the party. Dad says, no. He says, okay, could you send Amnon? And David, dumb as dirt. Listen, guys, when we get into sin, when we sin, when we sin and we ignore the rules and we take ourselves off the faith field, right? When we do this, we start, our judgment is so screwed up. Right, Tiger Woods. We look at him and say, are you serious? You did that? How dumb are you to do some of the things? I mean, I'm just talking about the transmissions with the cell phones. Uh, or Arnold, why did you do that? Or Elliot Spitzer, on and on. You know why guys do that? And we look back. DSK, I don't know how to say his whole name. Dominic Strauss, what's his name, right? DSK, the IMF guy, right? Whatever, okay. We say, why? why, why I mean, why would you do that? You know why? Because they can no longer think. Because their judgment screwed up. And so Absalom send Amnon, dad. Send him on out of town, away from the army and everything, right? So we're going to shear a bunch of sheep. And what does he do? He murders him. David's an idiot. And what made him an idiot? Because he ignored all the rules and he messed around with women. And it blew his mind. It blew his judgment. Because we can't spit in the face of God and get away with it. And what happens next? Well, David's like really angry. I'm almost done. Sorry. I know we're late. I'm sorry. David's really angry, but he lets it pass. Absalom comes back. He lets Absalom be like right on the outside of his office. Like he lets Absalom have a, a desk right outside of his own office. And everybody who comes to see King David for a while, Absalom stops and says a few words to them. And he's planting seeds of division. He's planting seeds against his father. And he's building and building and building. He does that for years until finally he's created enough momentum, everybody that he knows he can overthrow his father. And so he gets this army together and he runs his own dad at his own dad. Mighty King David has to flee the palace. And David, because he flees so quickly, he leaves a bunch of his wives behind. And so what happens on the rooftop of the palace? Absalom goes to his advisor. What do you think I should do? How can I discredit and dishonor my dad? He said, put a bunch of tents up on the rooftop of the palace, that same rooftop where your father saw Bathsheba. Get a bunch of tents, put them up there. And have sex with ten of your father's wives for all of Israel to see. Humiliation. You reap what you sow. It's disgusting. It's terrible. David's fleeing the mighty king of Israel. The giant killer. And as he's fleeing from Israel, there's this guy. His name is Shimei. And he's just heaping curses down upon King David. Finally, David's army kills Absalom. Absalom was no match for David military-wise. He was no match. So they, he's done. When they finally had a battle, Absalom's dead, and David's completely mourning, just completely distraught. We can't spit in the face of God. What we sow is what we reap. We need to pay attention to that. I want to come back and conclude with this one final statement. Where does this whole thing begin, men? Listen, temptation, women, fellas, we know how difficult it is. The numbers on guys addicted to pornography is astounding. 
we know, and we're just looking for some answer. We're just trying to fake it sometimes just so we can get by because women are such a temptation to us. Look, let me just one thing. We can talk about a lot of stuff. There's a good book called Every Man's Battle. Get that book. A lot of people read it. I've read it. It's a wonderful book. But let me give you just one thing to think about. If you'll pray, Almighty oh, God, I'm begging you to build my faith, God will do it. He'll take you in the middle of a battle where you have to be dependent upon him. When you're dependent upon him, you don't tend to get yourself involved in a lot of trouble. All of us struggle with this. And the best thing that we could do is say, Almighty God, please, I'm begging you, build my faith, increase my faith. Stretch me, challenge me. I want to take myself off the sidelines and into the field of faith. Because when we're there, we tend to stay in the middle of God's will and we tend to be able to be able to power through temptations a whole lot better when our faith is being built rather than we're on the sidelines. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, God, for your word. I thank you, God, that though we struggle with these things, they're incredible. They're powerful. Some of us this morning, we're thinking, oh, my gosh, there's no way I'll ever be able to defeat that temptation. There's no way. And, you know, I, don't, I really don't think that none of us are ever going to, like, put that temptation aside. But how can we keep it under control, Father? I think your word leads us to this. If we will beg you, almighty God, as men to build our faith and to challenge us and to stretch us, we stand a much better chance. Help us, God, this day. In Christ's name, amen.